0: Hi, and welcome back to To Think Minimum, the Technology Policy Institute's podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 17th, 2021. I'm Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow of the Technology Policy Institute. I'm joined by Tom Leonard, Senior Fellow and President Emeritus at TPI, and Sarah O, oh, Senior Fellow at TPI. Today, we're just going to take stock of the tech policy landscape, but talk mostly about the $1.9 trillion stimulus and a little bit of antitrust, and we'll figure out what we know and don't know. Hopefully, we'll have more of the know than don't know, but I don't know what the over-under is on, on those odds. I guess, well, well, we won't learn the over-under, but we will find out what we know and don't know. So, starting with the...
1: This, this is, Scott, is this the first time that we've had a completely
0: internal podcast? I think it is. Yeah. So, it's... It's, it's a, a milestone. A historic event, yeah. But does it just mean we couldn't get a guest? <laughs> Nobody will know. <laughs> No, it does not mean that. And actually, before we start, I want to add a plug for TPI's 2021 Aspen, which we're currently planning to have in person August 15th through 17th. We've already got a lot of big names lined up. It's going to be a great conference. We will be announcing some of them soon. So stay tuned. Okay, now with the stimulus, we know that there's lots and lots for broadband in there. I think people are still sorting out exactly what those are and what they mean, but a list from... Craig Moffitt seems pretty complete, and he lists the Emergency Broadband Benefit Program. That's $3.2 billion to provide up to $50 a month and $75 a month in tribal areas towards the cost of broadband service. Also includes money towards a connected device. The Emergency Connectivity Fund, which is $7.2 billion for equipment and Other relevant info services for use by students, teachers, and libraries, actually for students, teachers, and library patrons at locations other than the school or library. Something called the Coronavirus Capital Projects Fund, which is $10 billion for critical capital projects directly enabling work, education, and health monitoring, including remote options in response to the public health emergency with respect to the coronavirus. So that could be broadband or other things. And there's also just capital funding, which is another $10 billion dollars. But then there's also another part of it that I still don't completely understand, and I think others don't, that there seems to be $195 billion to states and $130 billion to cities that provides aid to a lot of things, households, small businesses, any industries affected by the coronavirus, but also infrastructure that could be sewage, water, and broadband, not, for some reason, electricity. And I have no idea why.
1: Well, it just I, I was going to mention that I... Listened to a fair amount of the hearing this morning and the Senate Commerce Committee had a hearing titled something like recent federal actions on broadband. Are we making progress? And I may have missed it because I missed the beginning, you know, the first 20 or 30 minutes of the hearing. But I had no idea after listening to another hour and a half whether we're making any progress or not, because nobody said anything that really, you know, I was hoping to learn that we had either made progress or not made progress what I did know learn is that we're spending a well, I won't use the word that comes to mind. A lot of money on broadband, and it's coming out of. I mean, what you said illustrates the point. It's coming out of multiple pots, especially in the, during the last year, and nobody seems to. It's almost too many pots to be able to follow and to be able to trace. Uh, you know what's going on. I mean, I had some good people talking at the hearing, but it's really it, it's uh, you know it's just a lot of money coming out of a lot of pots and. No real plan. I mean, we're not even talking about, the, you know, what they've done in the past what, 10 or 20 years. Just
0: now, no real plan to figure
1: out how to, how to account for how it's spent and whether it's doing anything.
0: Yeah. Well, first, I mean, missing the first 20 or 30 minutes of a congressional hearing is always a good strategy because uh-huh. you, know, you just miss the Congress people, you know, bloviating. So probably better use of your time. But yeah. i, I mean, ask
1: so you guys who are more on top of it. Have we made progress in the past You know, in closing various digital divides?
0: Well, I think part of the problem is we don't have a good definition for what it means to close the divide. We sort of know what the divide is. And that's people who either don't have, you know, aren't connected or can't be connected or can't connect sufficiently. But then, you know, nobody can agree on what connected sufficiently means. And so people just sort of throw out arbitrary numbers. And then, you know, as administrations change, it just switches, you know, it changes who wants to say we're closing the divide and who says we aren't. And so people who were unhappy with the PI FCC said that FCC did a terrible job in making any progress. But of course, connectivity and speeds improved. And now I'm sure those same people will say that this next FCC will do a great job. But the, you know, the reverse is completely true. People who said that the PI FCC did a great job will now say that it's going to do a bad job. And you know, so that's sort of just normal. That's normal politics. And I think we can be pretty sure that trends will continue where speeds mostly continue to improve. And connectivity improves, although we don't know exactly even what that means, because as wireless becomes an increasingly good substitute for wireline, it's not necessarily true that home broadband connections will always increase. I'm not saying they're perfect substitutes now, and maybe we're a ways away from them, or maybe we're not. We don't know. So, you know, it's a moving goalpost. And even worse than that, it's the moving goalpost that hasn't been defined. So I don't know how we know when we've made sufficient progress on it. I mean, another thing that I, that I harp on constantly is related to that, this measurement issue, that people are very, you know, we want to spend money on it, but it almost seems as if we're more interested in looking like we're doing something than in actually doing something. You know, we've got however many hundreds of billions of dollars here, you know, ready to roll out to deal with this, and nobody's interested in studying any of it, you know, what's worked, what doesn't. I mean, and the amounts of money for that are just... Minuscule, but still better to say you're built expanding the program than to try to figure out what works. It's upsetting, I think. Yeah,
1: and along the lines of one of the things you're talking about is that one of the, the subjects that was being debated at this hearing was some of the people saying, you know, we need to define adequate broadband as 100 100. And Mike O'Reilly and some of the others were saying, well, of course, if you do that, then you're going to just by definition, you're going to wipe out any progress we've made because there'll be so many people who are basically. Don't have adequate broadband, so <laughs> that's obviously. Well, I guess that, especially with all this money, I, I think that's going to be a subject.
0: Yeah, I think the definition is going to be. It's going to be a big deal, and it's it's really it's a it's a debate. I just don't I don't understand why people grasp onto those up down numbers as being so important. You know, it's sort of we developed this way of talking about broadband. However long ago, you know, in a time when it really mattered, when you were going from, you know, dial-up to DSL and, you know, and those increasing, those that speed is huge difference. You know, going from one to five is a big difference, five to ten, big difference. But, you know, every study that's been done shows that people value the increment less and less. But we sort of stuck with that when it's other things that, you know, and other things matter. And I just, I don't understand why those other things aren't part of the debate at all. Why the people who insist on 100-100 or, or any arbitrary metric Focus explicitly on those. So, first is, you know, what is the required up down bandwidth that'd be useful? I mean, if you, we're doing this on Zoom right now, anybody who's ever on Zoom, you can go to statistics in the preferences and you can see that you're using maybe one and a half megabits per second to do your, you know, your video chat. But, you know, they have other statistics there too. They, have, they show you the latency and your packet loss. And those sorts of things also matter for the connection. And we don't, you know, I, maybe there's no reason to focus on it because maybe there are no problems. But there's that. There's people's Wi-Fi connections are terrible inside their homes. And, you know, the reliability matters, you know, the, the uptime. And so, you know, criticizing these arbitrary bandwidth measures, some people seem to think that it means you're giving the ISPs a pass and just trying somehow trying to make excuses for them or save them money. And it, it's nothing like that at all. Focusing on a broader set of metrics might make it harder for them. We, we just, we don't know. And so I just, I find it odd that the debate insists on sticking with that one set of things. Again, that's another rant. I rant a lot. Well, I don't know. I'm not on top
1: of the debate enough to know what people's motivations, but maybe it's just people want us always to be behind
0: and always have to do more. (laughs) That's true. I mean, you know, there's something for aspirational goals. Right. That's
2: right. for sure. Right, There's also something to be said for how it's difficult to talk about costs. So we're talking about billions of dollars of spending, but no one's, well, no one, people don't really talk about lowering costs or finding cheaper options. Or it seems like the debate is always, we need more money because it's so expensive. Why can't we lower the costs and use the same amount of money, <laughs> get more bang for the buck? I think that's part of the incentives of the policy discussion, where the lever that seems easiest to change is the amount of total spending. But actually what's hard and like is actually beneficial to taxpayers is to figure out ways to lower the cost to provide better service. So I just did a quick calculation. The E-rate emergency connectivity fund in the stimulus bill is seven billion dollars. Divide that by 56 million K through 12 students. That's about $125 per student in the whole country. <laughs> so take off overhead costs and that's $100 per student for every student. So you would think that we could get Chromebooks to every student and that, you know, you, you would think like, okay, there's administrative costs to distribute and to track and, but, When we're talking billions of dollars, and then E-Rate itself is $4 billion annually. It's a constant steady stream. So that's all the service to the schools. These one-time allocations should be able to close the divide.
0: Also, I mean, your point about the Chromebooks, you know, it's another area where we should have been learning something during the pandemic because lots of school districts did that. Uh, You know, they gave Chromebooks and hotspots to anybody who needed one. And so, you know, in some places, in principle, there shouldn't be any kids who are not connected. But I'm sure there still are, you know, despite that. But we haven't, you know, we haven't studied it at all.
1: Does the new uh, this new program, $7 billion, does it also redefine the home as a classroom? I, th- I thought I heard something about that, but I wasn't sure that people were talking about that. I wasn't sure whether it did it or not.
2: From what I've read in notes, it includes off-campus locations for connected yeah. devices, internet service, and equipment. So it's extending the school ed tech to the home, spending devices, home equipment, and service. But I just want to continue about the numbers here, like billions <laughs> of dollars. I don't hear enough discussion of, like, lowering the cost. We don't talk about costs. Well, We talk about spending.
0: At the moment, we're not talking about costs in anything. I mean, it's <laughs> just all stimulus. But, I mean, but that's, you know, related, of course, to your paper, which maybe you should talk about a little bit, where you looked at the different ways BTOP from 2009 could have been allocated and the uh, simulations you ran uh, and, you know, showing that a reverse auction could have been much more efficient, got a much bigger bang for the buck. But I also thought a, a really interesting result from that paper was that it looked like the grant assignment process was almost no better than random assignment. That could have saved a lot of money, too.
2: Right. So that paper was an effort to study the Recovery Act spending, which was about $3 billion, which sounded like a lot then, but now it's not even much at all for infrastructure, for Middle Mile, the connected infrastructure portion of BTOP. And it's one of few papers that looks at outcomes after the spending. And in that paper, I compare different allocation mechanisms, including a counterfactual analysis for what if NTIA used a reverse auction? And the idea of the reverse auction would be competition in prices among suppliers. And, you know, E-Rate does have competitive bidding among providers. There is some metric measure of competition for costs, but in general, I would like to see more studies that look at how the government is actually, how the rules selected are useful or not, or, you know, efficient or not as much energy going to that effort as energy towards getting spending up.
1: I mean, that really gets to the the question of incentives for um, politicians and for government officials. I mean, is the incentive to say, look how great we are, we're spending X billion dollars on this problem and not talking about what it's actually done? Or is, is the incentive, I mean, is there much of an incentive to talk about outcomes?
0: Well, there's an incentive to say that your outcomes are good. (laughs) <laughs> but there's never much of an incentive to to do a rigorous evaluation. I mean, any kind of evaluation has to have as a possible answer that it didn't work, and you know, nobody, particularly when you're doing a self evaluation, could do that. I mean, the government does some things to get around that. I mean, GAO does analyses; and they're pretty good, although they've got you know they've got a pretty full plate, the number of assignments they they have, and you know, sometimes we separate data collection from the agencies that are doing the, the thing. I think it'd be better if the FCC were not in charge of collecting all this data. I think BEA and BLS might do a better job of it and have no, you know, no conflicts of interest in in doing it. They'd also probably do a better job of making data available to outsiders. Since this is set up that way, but so Scott, I don't
1: think you mentioned in your list of maybe because it hasn't been passed yet the ninety four billion
0: Clyburn Klobuchar proposal. That's right. That's a whole separate thing, right? Isn't it? So what does that what is that specifically? So it's another $2 billion, let's say $6 billion for emergency broadband benefit, an extra two billion for E-rate. And then where's the rest? Where is the rest? I mean, everybody wants to be part of saying that they're wants to say they're part of the solution. And you know, not to be so cynical, I think most of them want to be part of the solution. But nobody gets any credit for saying, let's do an experiment. Let's try to get the biggest bang for the buck. And you know, I think we You know, maybe the
1: maybe the uh if the agencies themselves, you know, don't have an incentive to evaluate their own work, it does seem to me that the Congress should have some sort of incentive. To, I mean, they vote the money and they should have some
0: sort of incentive to... Uh That's true. Although maybe, you know, it's a little bit different now in the context of the $1.9 trillion because the amounts of money we're talking about for broadband are huge, but it's still just a fraction well, I think people, I, I don't know I have, I
1: think people have just gotten numb to these large figures, you know, so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I You know, I remember, I think it was Paul DeThaw did some analysis, so, uh, you know, some kind sort of back of the envelope calculations on how much it would cost to connect the country to fiber the whole the rest of the country. It was sort of $40 billion to get to some, you know, to get three quarters of the way to connecting everyone who's remaining, but then another $40 billion to get to the last quarter. It was probably actually even probably a smaller number, a higher number to get to a smaller share than I'm I'm remembering. But now those numbers seem small, even though they're not. Right. But it's hard to keep things in perspective.
1: Yeah, I recall, I mean, my OIRA days, you know, were $100 million was considered a major regulation and, you know, did a and it still is, I think, you know, warranting a cost-benefit analysis and everything. But $100 million is just small potatoes these days.
0: Yeah. I mean, it doesn't even show up in rounding errors.
2: (laughs) And maybe it's due to the pandemic, emergency, like exigent circumstances um, of the crisis. But do you think that there will be evaluation after the trillions are spent? Well, I mean, (laughs) when
0: we're we're talking about trillions, it's, it's, you know, there's no question there's going to be a lot of fraud involved. So we'll definitely hear those stories even though those probably aren't really the ways that the money gets wasted. Those will be the sort of the, wow, can you believe this happened kind of story. But in terms of, you know, evaluation, in terms of what did the money do any good, I don't know. But you're also, you know, you're raising a question of what is the money supposed to do in the first place? If it's supposed to get the economy going, maybe you do want to build fiber everywhere you can because you're just putting people to work. <laughs> and it's not really about the broadband. I don't think anyone who promotes these programs would say that. and I don't think anyone believes that to be the case, but There is the bigger question of what it's for.
2: Will we discover the multiplier effect is small? (laughs) Well, I don't know. Maybe I don't. How do we measure the multiplier effect now or how do we justify?
0: Yeah, that's funny. It'll it'll show highlight the way everybody misuses the input output tables. So actually, to go back quickly to one thing. So with the new E-Rate money, essentially allowing you to call a, a house a school room so that, you know, places outside of school can get connected. Do you think that could have net neutrality implications? I mean, you know, does that mean you could set up a house and it's part of your school intranet? I mean, obviously, I don't know. Neither <laughs> None of us know. <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm imagining that, you know, schools want to make, you know, want their students to be part of their internal network. Or are they going to be required to give them, you know, a, you know, a plain old internet connection? I'm saying plain old is the wrong connotation, but I mean, uh, the same kind of connection everyone else has.
2: Yeah, and that is interesting. Are hotspots governed by terms of service for the school, or can they? I don't know. Can the school track what the students are doing at home? Hmm. Privacy, also. <laughs>
0: right. it's a good question. I don't know. I wonder what the um, what are different school districts have done with that. Well, there are there are restrictions on you, that schools that
1: accept these the E-rate money. There are restrictions on what the kids can access, right? Generally, in,
0: in the school, I don't know if that's part of E-rate itself, but schools tend to have. They do have blockers, which all the students are ex- extremely adept at getting around. Right. So that's part of the educational program, right? It is. I think that's, well, they're not always going to say that's the main thing they've learned this year, but you know, they're at home, so they don't even need to worry about those blockers. So they've all gotten good at doing TikToks while they sit in front of their computer, listening to their teacher, who's probably also making TikToks.
2: But that is a good point. I mean, uh, not directly related, but I hope that there are some voices that can say like where the E-rate money went. Like we should study it. Like there aren't really good studies that show us where it went or how it was used or what was more effective than others. Are there?
0: You know, not not a lot. I mean, uh, Tom Hazlett and I wrote a paper looking at sort of the effects. Well, you know, we, uh, a relation whether there's a relationship between how much schools got and test outcomes. And you know, there wasn't. It's the same. As other papers have not found uh, a relationship, and that's you know part of the ongoing debate about what are the benefits of technology in school. And we often find that you know it's hard to identify them. And that's a different question for whether kids can access their materials from home. Those are I mean, those are two different things. Not to not to conflate them. But of course, we also have a um. We have a we're biased in this and have a vested interest in wanting people to study it because partly that's what we do and also because we have decided to solve the uh, mapping problem on our own since the government's taking so long anyway. I'm actually partly joking. Sarah, do you want to talk for a minute about our dashboard? That was another
1: another issue that came up during this hearing: the mapping and the.
0: Yep.
2: Yeah, sure. So at TPI, we're building a web app online tool to help us answer questions that we've been discussing here. You know, where is broadband build-out happening? How does it compare with speeds? All the questions that policymakers have, we have too. And so we're using big data sets and machine learning and regressions to answer those questions and to keep up with all these new maps that are coming out. And we also track subsidies from the USF and we keep them all up to date. and. Yeah, that's our effort to actually study the spending and what questions people are asking about.
0: I mean, when people say there are no maps, I mean, we've built, you know, we have, it's a cloud-based tool where we've combined all of the public data that there is from the FCC, from the census, all of the data from universal service, whether it's E-Rate, Lifeline, high cost, speed test data. We've got a whole backlog of other data that we're putting in. We can analyze it for at any geographic level. We can overlay maps. We can run regressions. We can combine data. That, and. So since, you know, this is a tool that should have existed by now, it didn't. So we made it. People can get in touch with us if they're interested in learning more. It's a fun project. And someday the government might catch up with us. We'll see, not to exaggerate, but so well, let's turn for a minute to antitrust, which is another, another big issue. And Tom, you were just saying before that it's hard to, even, you know, a few years ago, it's hard to imagine debates going the way they are now.
1: Yeah, I mean the debate. I mean, we know there's been legislation been introduced in the Senate, and there will be legislation, I guess, introduced in the House. And probably at this stage, the details are less important than what it all indicates about. And there was a major House report last year. I mean, the it's a little shocking when you look at the at kind of I don't know how intellectual movements go, how rapidly this new I don't know what you want to call it. People have called it different things, but you know this new neo Brandeisian or whatever. I haven't even heard that term that much recently. But this new thinking about antitrust, the thinking about antitrust, the reform, like I call it, the reform movement in antitrust, has taken hold. You know, in a very, very short period of time, just a period of you know probably just a year or two almost. And basically, the goals of this movement are to to turn to, to just to make a 180 degree turn in antitrust enforcement kind of to largely discard what has been the antitrust thinking of the last 30 or 40 years. It's tended, it's been kind of caricatured as, you know, Chicago school thinking and, and kind of mischaracterized as you know, just overly just concerned with price. And but anyway, I mean, it's, you know, a lot of the proponents of this thinking want to discard the consumer welfare standard, not all of them, there's people, but there is a general view I think it's based on two things, two premises that I don't think have really been established, although there obviously is a lot of debate about. The one is that we really have a significant market power problem in this country, in tech and maybe even more broadly. And the second is that we've had a significant, it is largely due to, to the extent it's true, it's largely due to under-enforcement of antitrust, and that is due to, in the in the minds of the proponents due to the Chicago school revolution. So basically what they want to do is turn antitrust back to what it was before, presumably less economic analysis, because I think what the Chicago school, put in quotes, did that whole revolution was really to to elevate the role of economics in antitrust enforcement. So I think basically
0: what, if successful, I think this would kind of turn things around. So without talking about the economics of it first, I don't, completely understand the popularity of this movement. I mean, I understand kind of the intellectual appeal of the arguments, whether regardless of how valid they are. But I mean, these are the same companies that have pretty much gotten us through the pandemic. They're, you know, the ones that bring us stuff. And, uh, you know, it's the one part of the economy that's actually worked. And also in various surveys, not that I put much stock in state of preference surveys, but these are still, you know, among the most admired companies that exist. So, you know, is this, do you think that this is something that's, you know, more broadly popular or is antitrust just too esoteric anyway for most people to think about? But if it is too esoteric for most people to think about, or if it's not actually a particularly popular approach to rethinking antitrust, what accounts for the rapid change in the debate? Because it just, it doesn't fit with public, you know, overall public perception.
1: Yeah, well, those are, those are all good questions and I don't know that they have any easy answers I mean one is that maybe that some people they, they divorce the actual popularity of these services that you know that the big digital companies the Amazons and the Googles of the world actually provide which most people like or a lot most people like with the fact that there are very rich people that have you know people have made you know hundred hundred billion dollars the founders of these companies and there's I guess there's always a, maybe a little bit of resentment against it's kind of, a, you know, an extension of the populist politics that, you know, that's we've had in this country and around the world, really, in the last few years. I mean, that, that seems to be
0: part of it. Although, but, you know, part but, of, some of the irony of it is that if some of the more extreme people got what they wanted, they'd break up the companies. And shareholders often like that. So, you know, the people who are rich would get even richer. Yeah.
1: So, well, that's, well, that's, yeah, that's what happened when they broke up Standard Oil. Right, But uh, but it's hard for me to believe when I look at these things that the various proposals, I mean, there's the general proposals for reforming antitrust law, and then there's specific things with respect to these companies. It's hard to imagine how, if anything, if any of these things were really carried out, you know, how consumers would benefit.
0: Right. Yeah, well, I mean, that's where it goes to more of the European approach, where it's focused on competitors, not consumers, with an idea that somehow that benefit trickles down. Although I think the people who like this focus on competitors probably do not like the phrase trickle down.
1: Right. But I think the interesting question that you raise is kind of implicit is, you know, what are the politics of this? You know, because these companies are popular. So and presumably our elected representatives are somewhat, you know, somewhat responsive to that. So the question is how far this reform will go in terms of actual legislation, given that it is. To some significant extent, aimed at these companies that are popular,
0: right? Or if uh, you know, if the companies actually wanted to do something about it, what they do is well. I have a hard time believing anything is this simple. But Jeff Bezos can act more like his ex-wife Mackenzie Scott, who decided nobody needs as much money as she has, and she gives away huge chunks of it. You know, there's something to being a good philanthropist.
1: You have to believe, though, that given the way things generally work out, that whatever happens, probably these companies are going to. Are going to find some way of winning. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> that's that's a good point. They'll probably be more entrenched than before. Right. Well, I mean, that's an often a, a side effect that this that the incumbents incumbents win. But I'm a, I'm obviously overly cynical. So <laughs> I don't know. We won't know if you're overly cynical or not for a while. Right. Maybe right. you're underly cynical. Right. Right. But it's obviously going to be a subject of conversation.
1: I don't know what the uh, what the odds of something passing are?
0: I don't know. And we don't. I mean, I guess we have a sense of who's moving into some of these antitrust positions now, but you know, there's still no FTC chair, permanent chair named. I mean, some of these things are still up in the air.
1: I don't think we have a good idea. At least I don't have a good idea. We have obviously some of the, you know, we know, it's been a, a nomination of to the for an FTC commissionership and another. You know Lena Khan is. I don't know if she's been formally nominated yet, but she's mm-hmm. going to be nominated. She will, right? And uh, that Tim Wu has been uh, appointed to a position at, at the White House. In terms of actually who's going to be chair of the FTC and who's going to be the Attorney General for Antitrust, I don't know. I look at predicted, and I, every every day it's. Dramatically changed, and I just looked at it today, and there was a completely new name that I, maybe I should have known, but <laughs> completely new name I never, you know, that I wasn't familiar
0: with. So, who was pretty high up in the probability ranking? So, and that also suggests we talked about this the other day that the administration is doing a great job of keeping its information close hold. Right. Um, if these prediction markets are so although oh, maybe, you know, maybe just the number of people who like to bet on incoming attorneys general is very small. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think it probably is small. But interestingly enough, yesterday or the day before, Rebecca Slaughter, who's you know the acting chair mm-hmm. of the of the FTC, was at the top of the list for and predicted for the assistant mm-hmm. attorney general. You know, she was but you know, now she's not even on there at all. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's it's a thin market and nobody And I think there's probably very few people who are really interested in it. Just,
0: I mean, of the people who participate and predict it. Right. I assume you don't uh, have an account on there. No, I don't. Right? <laughs> 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 right. So who with knowledge plays on that? I have to find out. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, there may be, yeah,
1: there may be. Well, you would think they would be doing it fairly, fairly soon. I mean, maybe they wanted to wait until, for some of these positions until, uh, until Merrick Garland got confirmed but now he's confirmed and actually they did nominate some other assist, some other high level justice department people before he was confirmed
0: so right i mean i guess it could mean either there's a lot of debate internal debate about who these people should be or there's a lot of internal hey we got a lot of other things to worry about going on in, inside right <laughs> to i mean and to be fair they certainly do have a lot of other things to worry about
1: yeah, and I assume he would want to fill those positions. I would imagine. Yeah, so it's interesting.
0: Yeah, well, I think we are. I think we're out of time. So this is a good discussion. We'll have to do this every now and then, and see what we know, what we don't know. Maybe we should just have that. Maybe that should be the title of the segment: what we know and what we don't know. <laughs> Where do we come down this week? Yeah, <laughs> focusing on the latter, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Good. Well, thanks so much. Right. See you guys. Take care. Bye. Yep.